Our Father in heaven, we pray that by your Spirit, tonight, you may teach us to number our days. Father, you know what the world is throwing at us every day, from the internet, from the advertisements, from the unbelievers, giving us godless values, convincing us to cling on to hopes that will never deliver. We ask, Father God, for the sake of your Son, for the sake of your Church, for the sake of your glory, that this evening by your Spirit, you may take this word of truth, that you may edify us and strengthen us, that you may mature us as your Church, that indeed as your people, we may display to this world your wisdom, which is true wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. What is the point? Huh? What's the point? What is the point? Have you asked that recently? You must have, isn't it? It's just a matter of whether it's the last one week or it's the last one month. You must have asked that. It's such a common question. We can ask it casually every day. Tim, Tim Phillips, change the nappy. What's the point? He's going to pee and poo and pee again. Isn't it, Tim? Marianne, stop drinking Coke. <laughs> Original Coke. She's not here. What's the point? Can I drink the rhino water almost every day? He might even die earlier than me. Well, we use the term more seriously as well, isn't it, in our lives? When we are despaired, when we are desperate, when we are frustrated, or when we are dumbfounded, we have no answers. What's the point? I worked so hard to raise up these rascals, and yet they turn against me. What's the point? I clock so much overtime, I rush like mad for the project. And yet, no bonus. My, po- my boss didn't even appreciate what I did. Oh, what's the point? I worked so hard to feed the family, and yet, she walked out, of, she walked out on me. Well, last week, most of you who were here, you would have met Kohelet, the writer of Ecclesiastes. He asked a similar question as well, isn't it? With a similar tone. What's the point? What's the point of any human pursuit at all? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This evening, Kohelet wants to engage you and me in a conversation. He says, hey guys, you guys in Smack 2, yeah, you guys, please help me. What's the point? What's the point of pursuing wisdom? 
What's the point of pursuing pleasure? Or what's the point of pursuing success? Have you ever thought of that? Have you? Good, you have. Please talk to me, I want to find out. That's what Kohalas is inviting us to do, to have a conversation thing. However, I suspect most of us here, if not all, are not prepared to engage in such a conversation topic. And that is because we are overly prepared for such a conversation topic. What do I mean? Well, we may seemingly agree that Kohala's questions are valid, right? They are important and they are relevant. But let's be honest. They are painfully confrontational questions. Think about it. Last week he said, all is vanity. That is, all human endeavor is meaningless. If you don't find that blunt, let me make it blunt for you. He says, everything that all of you, 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 and you, all that you are doing, it's all pointless. That's how blunt it is. Don't you find that confronting? I do. This man is going all out to crush every single hope that you and I ever have to find fulfillment in life through wisdom, through pleasure, and through success. And we know very well that if he's right, you and I are in trouble. If he's right, we will be left with a reality that we don't dare to face. That is confrontational to the extreme, I think. But don't worry. You and I are very well prepared for such an attack on our very being. We are used to that. Who are you, Kohalit? Who are you to say that what I'm striving for is pointless? Of course, we wouldn't stand up and challenge Kohalit in the face. We are all good agents, isn't it? We just do what we do best. Well, that's just what you think, Kohalit. That's you. That's your opinion. Good old typical postmodern children. Friends, because reality bites, reality hurts, because it is a very bitter pill to swallow, to entertain any possibility that Kohelet might just be right, and because we wouldn't know what to do with life anymore if he is right, our instinct is to shut Kohelet down right away. We won't be giving him a fair hearing. We will just write him off. But mind you, friends, Kohalath here is not your 18-year-old, any 18-year-old here, Stanley, are you? He's not your 18-year-old fresh grad who just finished his arts degree majoring in philosophy. Okay? We can't write him off saying, what does he know? Wait till he grew up and see the world for a few more years and then come back and talk to me. Chapter 1, verse 12 says, He has been king over Israel in Jerusalem. He is no Tom, Dick and Harry or pretend guru that you see on Pataling Street. He is an accomplished man 
with great wealth and great power. His conclusions about life is not from some classroom tutorials. They are from years and years of experimenting with life, real life. We have to give him a fair hearing. Does he have a point? If you think he's wrong, challenge him by all means. But do it substantially. If you write him off, make sure that you offer a better conclusion than the one that he's offering. We have to hear him out. Unlike most of us, Kohelet seriously threw his entire life to discover the meaning of life. We here in SMAC 1, SMAC 2 and ACA just last week, we started and we tried to wrestle with the meaning of life, isn't it? Week after week by looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week, Andrew Chia, he compares us humans to what? Remember? Are you slipping? Frogs and pebbles. We live and we die. We live and we die. And we all seem to agree. We laugh at ourselves. And then we went home and we laughed more. Six days pass, we come back here and then we laugh again. Did it trouble you that Andrew likened you to tepples? Your grandpa is just like a tepple. <laughs> There's more blood, isn't it? It might have disturbed us a little bit at least that we are tepples. But any one of you here took leave and stayed home and think about life? None of us did that. Kohelet here is different from us. He is sickly serious about his investigation. Chapter 1, verse 12. He said, I applied my heart. That's the Old Testament way of saying, I pour out my soul, my whole being, my mind, everything, to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done in the heaven. He went all out to observe and to experience all the work that man engages himself in. He's super determined to find out what exactly is life all about. What did he do? Well, first, he went out to pursue and acquire wisdom to find out the meaning of life. Where else do you go, isn't it? You go to uni. As if uni answers many questions. That's another topic another day. Verse 16. He says, I say in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And what do you discover? Verse 17. I perceive that this is also but a striving after the wind. In other words, pointless. You try catching the wind, it doesn't work. It's pointless. Why is it pointless? Verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. 
Kohelet assumed and Kohelet thought that wisdom and knowledge would answer his questions about life. Instead, it brought him more frustration. He thought that wisdom would satisfy him and he would be happy. Instead, he got more sorrow. Notice that Kohelet is a fair critic in his evaluation of wisdom. He is not biased and then simply sweep wisdom aside saying that wisdom is completely useless. Jump to chapter 2 verse 13. Take a look. Then I saw that there is more gain, more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. What is he saying? He says, adult wisdom cannot solve the problem of the vanity of life. He discovers that wisdom does enable a person to have a better life. You and I would agree, wouldn't we? A wise person is able to avoid getting into trouble and he's able to advance in our society easier than a fool. Thus, wisdom does have an immediate profit under the sun. Kohelet gives due credit to wisdom. But his evaluation didn't stop there. Verse 14, he continues. 14b And yet, and yet, I perceive that the same event happened to all of them, which is both the wise and the fool. Then I say in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I say in my heart, that too is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no endurance remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will be long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. We have to admit that Kohelet has a very strong point here. Don't you? It's a very hard argument to go against. Yes, the wise might have an advantage over the fool, but it's only when he's alive. The smart and rich businessman in Bangsa. Anyone from Bangsa here? Just stereotyping, okay? No offense. Damansara or whatever. A rich and smart businessman. He can look down and have pity on the foolish, drunken, homeless drug addict in Charas. Stereotypes again. Brickfields. No no one from Charas. Sorry. Brickfields. Okay. No BAC students, right? Only ATC. Okay? No worries. Even if they look down on you, it's only for a little while. Eventually, they like it or not, the reality is, verse 16, like the wise, they die like the fool. Okay? Yes, we can turn around and look at the person next to us, not literally now, and feel satisfying superior, satisfyingly superior over them. Oh, you, you have an MBBS from UKM, is it? Wow. I have a PhD. And it's from Harvard. And by the way, my MBBS was from Cambridge. <laughs> Friends, Kohala says, compare all you want. 
Inflate your ego all you want. Boost your self-importance all you want now. For how the wise dies just like the fool. Whichever school or whichever university appears on your Facebook page or anyone's Facebook page, UKM or Oxford, Taylor's or Help or ATC or Harvard, Kohala says, everyone dies. Get it? Everyone dies. There's no difference. doesn't mean that death is going to look at the UKM students and say you die later or you die more comfortable. All die. All dead. I personally find this extremely confronting. Don't you? It really hurts your ego. It shakens my sense of self-worth. Where now do I find myself worth? For death makes a mockery of all our human endeavor and boasting. And I guess that is why death is such a taboo topic. Whether you are Chinese or Indians or whether you are in Malaysia or anywhere in the world, death is a taboo topic. For there is no escape when we confront death. So the best that we can do is joke about it. That's what we always like to do about that. Joke about it. Or we avoid talking about it. And then we continue to live in a delusion that death is not part of the life equation. We do that very well, don't we? Friends, imagine that you are Kohelet. You went out all your life for many years, more than the doctor's amount to study your medicine degree, all your life to pursue wisdom, thinking and assuming that it will finally give you meaning and satisfaction in life. In the end, you realize that it is pointless. Years of PhD, study, 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 mark, 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 and then it's pointless. What is the point? No wonder he said in verse 17, take a look. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous, which is evil to me. All is vanity and a striving after the wind. Next, moving on from wisdom, Kohelas, now move on to experimenting with pursuing pleasure to find out the meaning of life. If there is anything that can give meaning, surely it's pleasure, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 1, he said, In my, I say in my heart, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this was, van- this was also vanity. I say of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I search in my heart how to churn my body with wine. My heart still guiding me with wisdom. And how, ho- how to lay hold of folly. Till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under the heaven during the few days of their life. Most of you know me, Kenneth, and you know that I, Kenneth, can't say to you what Kohelet has just said to you to convince you that there is no point in pursuing pleasure. Outside the Christian circle, what I'm doing now is a joke. This is a joke. A young chap is talking to you about the meaning of life. 
and is listened to by men and women who is much older than me. If you are Chinese, you would have heard it from your grandparents. I have eaten more salt than you have eaten rice. <laughs> right? Which means the old have seen the world much more than the young. How can the young be teaching the old about the meaning of life? So, if I were to say that there is no point in pursuing pleasure, it would never satisfy, you would probably say, what do you know, Kenneth? No point in pursuing pleasure? You sure? Have you ever tasted the Elmer's caviar? It's the eggs of the beluga thousand fish. It's the oldest surviving fish species of the dinosaur era. Found only in the Caspian Sea. Kenneth worked hard, worked very hard, saved money. When you got the money, visit the only outlet in the world that served this dish. The Caviar House in London. Try it, then come back and tell me that there is no point in living. But I swear to you, it's worth every penny. When I was working in a company in Singapore, which has a plant in Suzhou, China, a male colleague came back and told me, Kenneth, wait till you see those gorgeous China doors. I bet you just can't get your eyes off them. Friends, you are right. I haven't eaten the best food in the world, I haven't traveled the world, I haven't seen much of the world. But it's not me, it's Kohalat and ultimately God, through Ecclesiastes, who is trying to convince us that pleasure doesn't satisfy. Let's take a look now at Kohalat and his resume and his portfolio, shall we? And see how many degrees he would have if he had been alive today. Chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I make great works. I built houses, civil engineering. I planted vineyards, biotechnology. For myself, I made myself gardens and parks, degree in landscape design. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. Irrigation knowledges, is there such a term? No? If there is, you have got it. I bought male and female slaves. I had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem, more than New Zealand, I think. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures for kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained in me. And whatever my eyes desired, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. You name it, Kohalat had tried it. He tried it all. And yet, what does he conclude in verse 11? Surprise, surprise. 
Then I considered all that my hands had done in toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Kohalat here challenges a very basic assumption that we make. The assumption we make that pleasure is worth living for. He says, Hey, you think by completing a mega project, like, I don't know, Putrajaya or whatever, that will satisfy you? Well, that's true. It satisfies little. Try designing and building a thousand major cities in the world and then come back and tell me it satisfies. You think that acquire, acquiring uh, stuff for yourself, that satisfies? Take my credit card. Let me buy you a thousand iPhones, a thousand Galaxy Trees, a thousand Tech Hoyers. You name it, I buy a thousand for you. And you get to keep it. Then tell me that it satisfies. You think porn satisfies? Let me grant you unlimited access to the porn streaming and watch 24 hours. Then come back and tell me that it satisfies. Friends, we can identify with Kohalit's argument here, can't we? I'm sure I'm not the only one who suffers from the if-only syndrome. Do you know the if-only syndrome? The never-ending, if only, if only I got this, then life would have been better. If only I got that, that would have been better. Electronic gadgets, cars, job positions, houses, condominiums, you name it. We have tried it all. Kohala says, whatever his eyes had desire, right? It's a sweeping statement. Whatever his eyes desired, he did not keep away from them. He did not keep from them. And yet, for this man who have tried it all, who have got it all, he concludes, behold, all was vanity. A striving after the wind, and there was nothing to begin under the sun. What's the point? They don't satisfy. Next, you still there? No one wants to commit suicide yet. It's good. Yeah, hang on, okay. Next, Kohalat explains, or he argues, why there is no point in pursuing success. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it, leave his success to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be a master of all, of all my successes for which I toil and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. I, I think, generally, uh, people around us, people today, are aware that we can't bring our accumulated wealth, our successes, our degrees into our grace, isn't it? But in the face of death, I think people and us, we have devised a way 
to make it more comfortable, to make the laws more bearable. We tell ourselves that we can keep these successes by leaving it, by leaving it behind to the next generation. Right? They will continue our success, they will continue our legacy. In that sense, we don't really lose what we have worked so hard for. But Kohalas, you should know by now, is very brutal. He wouldn't allow us to think even like that. He just shut us down. He warns us against this delusion. He says again, guys, stop kidding yourself. Stop assuming that all your successes will be preserved. It may not, and it probably will not. If you're Chinese, you will know that your wealth will not pass three generations. Think about it, he says. Is this really what you want to do in life? Work very hard and accumulate the success so that an idiot can squander it? Is that really what you want to do in life? Is that meaningful? Friends, we, we have to feel and kasian the desperation of Kohelet at this point. Chapter 2, verse 17, he said, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. 2.18, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun. 2.20, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. 2.21, this also is vanity, a great evil. 2.23, all his days are full of sorrow and his work of vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Do you feel his disappointment? His despair? Kassian, isn't it? But understandably so, don't you think? Understandably so. This man is near suicidal. Think about it. All that he had ever believed in all his life that would give him meaning in life failed to deliver. He invested his life to find meaning and satisfaction in wisdom, in knowledge, in wealth, in pleasure, in work, in fame, in sex. But one by one, the reality of life just again and again strips it away from him. What's the point? He has been living all his life in delusion and false hopes. But mind you, friends, in case some of you are tempted to conclude that Kohalath is just well, one of those pessimistic guys that you have around us in the world, Kohalath is not pessimistic, okay? He is realistic. Unlike us, many of us, or at least me, many a times, consciously or subconsciously, live in La La Land. Unlike us, Kohalath has gone all the way and discovered the hard reality of life. He found that life is meaningless. How about you? How about me? Have you come to the point or have you come to the same conclusion as Kohalan about life? Are you desperate? Are you despaired? 
point and even dare to ask, are you near suicidal? Have your false hopes been stripped apart and you're left naked and hopeless? For if that has not happened to you, Jesus and the Gospel and the cross will make no sense to you at all. Worse, you will misunderstand, you will mistreat, and you will misrepresent the Gospel. For the Gospel is the power of salvation, power of God for salvation. Power of God to rescue. Rescue from what? From despair. From helplessness. From hopelessness. Jesus came not to help, not to heal the healthy. He came to heal the sick. In our study of Ecclesiastes, as we have done like tonight, we go through Kohelet's systematic argument, right? Systematically. We can easily fall into the trap of thinking that people, including ourselves, can logically, systematically be convinced out of chasing after the wind. Right? So long as you sit them down, you think things through, it doesn't work, it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah, you're chasing after the wind, therefore there's no point. That somehow reasoning can pull us out of the delusion that we are in. The delusion that we have been breathing in and out every day of our life for many, many years. Friends, that is too high a view of ourselves. That is too high a view of humanity. That's a deluded view. We can't. The scripture, however, because it is God's word, has a much more accurate view of who we are and our condition. Romans 1 says that we have read. 21. For a though they, that's referring to humanity, 21. A though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, for, but they become futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, and animals, and creeping things. This is who we are. The song that we'll be singing after the sermon, it's entitled, Revive Us. It's a great song, with great lyrics. The lyrics echoes our condition. It echoes Kohelet, and it echoes our pursuits for the things that are in this world. It says, Idols have captured our land. We worship the works of our hands. Lord, for too long we have built houses on sand. And then the song rightly goes on to prescribe the only possible cure for our deluded mind. The song asks God to do what we can't. He says, or he prays, Revive us, O Lord. Send forth your spirit, your spirit. Unsheathe your sword and break through our chains, our chains of, chains of delusions, 
by the power of your word. Revive us. Revive us. Revive us, O Lord. Only God and God can help us. Some of us here, um, especially the believers and the Christians, you may be thinking in your mind right now, Hey, Kenneth, you have been talking to us as though we are unbelievers. We know everything that is done in the Lord has meaning, isn't it? We know that we know wisdom and pleasure and success in themselves don't deliver. We know that. Why are you telling us that? We know that they don't deliver. Our only hope is in God. But good thing that you are doing that. The unbelievers need to hear it. Right? But brothers and sisters, haven't you thought about that? Haven't you in your weakness, in the down moments of your faith, ever wondered if only I'm an unbeliever? Then I can enjoy what they are enjoying. If only I can chase after those things, then there will be satisfaction. Is, is, this, is this way of living really brother, this Christian life? It doesn't seem to satisfy for now. Shouldn't I just give it all up and chase after what really satisfies? Well, friends, if you are in that position, or even you are at the verge in your Christian life whereby you are thinking of giving it all up and chase after what you think really satisfies, Ecclesiastes is the Word of God for you. Okay? Ecclesiastes is not there to tell us that, hey, shh, don't tell people about what you're thinking, okay? Otherwise, the pastoral team knows about it. It's going to get the counselor and talk to you. <laughs> he doesn't ask us to suppress that feeling, okay? About that helplessness and the weakness of faith. Ecclesiastes is honest. He says, okay, you think that pleasure satisfies? Go, go ahead. Go all the way. Chase it. Abandon your faith. Chase it all the way. Find fulfillment in it. But I tell you, Kohelet, I did that. I went all the way. Each one of them. And assume I actually have more power and more money at, your, at disposal than any one of you. I went all the way. But let me tell you, it didn't satisfy. It didn't satisfy at all. So don't bother trying. Trust God. He is the only one who satisfies. He made us in His image. Only He can satisfy us. Don't be deluded. Don't be led astray by what seemingly satisfies but disappoints you in the end. Ecclesiastes is very realistic about the Christian life. It's realistic that sin so easily entangles and it helps us in that time. Let me now draw to a close by looking at the final verses which I have not dealt with. Verses 24 to 26. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his soil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. 
For apart from Him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases Him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, He has given the business of gathering and collecting. Only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving out of the wind. These are quite difficult verses. Because it seems that Kohalath is directly contradicting what he has just said, isn't it? Didn't he just say that there is no point pursuing pleasure? And here he says, go ahead, eat and drink and find enjoyment. Contradictions. What could he mean? Let me offer three possibilities in brief. Firstly, he could be offering a solution to the despair that he has been talking about. He offers a solution by calling us all to be hedonists. Hey guys, come on. Let's all jump onto the hedonist bandwagon. Let us just enjoy life and live for pleasure. Okay? Since we're going to die anyway, let's just eat and drink and enjoy. He has a similar tone to what the Apostles Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if the dead are not raised, if there is no resurrection, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But is this what Kohalas is saying? Asking us to be heavenless. Well, it doesn't seem to be, isn't it? It doesn't, see, it doesn't seem to fit the whole text. It doesn't seem to fit verse 24 and 25 where Kohalas talks about the hand of God, about enjoyment coming from God. Second option. He could be referring or he could be offering to us a solution to the despair by pointing to us the right attitude towards pleasure and work. What do I mean? He says, perhaps the key is to recognize that being able to eat and drink and find satisfaction in work is not a human endeavor. It's not a human accomplishment, but rather it is a gift from God. That is, when our crazy quest for profit is finally given up altogether and is replaced by the notion of a divine gift, then perhaps you will find satisfaction, recognizing that all things are from God. Well, this reading seems to match the text much better. And there is a ring of truth to it from the rest of the Bible. It resonates with what Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says in verse 8, For if we have food and clothing, with this we will be content. But for those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, and plunge people into ruin, and destruction. Basically, don't despise material things, don't despise pleasure, don't despise wisdom. They are created by God, they are from the hand of God, they are good. God made all things good in Genesis. If you have them, be thankful and enjoy them. If you don't have them, don't invest your life to pursue them. 
Well, this reading, again, I think it's plausible and it echoes the biblical understanding of creation. It affirms that creation is good. However, I think if that is all, it misses something that Kohelet intends to deliver. What do I mean? Maybe, just maybe, we are not meant to harmonize these verses at all. These verses are not Kohelet's solution at the end of a long list of despair. That finally, now you are despair, let me give a solution so that you are being brought out of despair. Perhaps this is not a solution at all to neutralize the desperation that he faced. The contradictions that is found in these verses are deliberate. They are meant to reflect the contradictions of life. Contradictions of life that you and I face every day. That's the nature of the wisdom literature in the Bible anyway. In Proverbs, you see lots of them. But they are there to reflect that we live in a complex world. Friends, Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes, we must note that a belief in God does not nullify, nullify the sense of vanity. Remember that Kohelet himself is not an atheist. He believed in God. And yet there is vanity written all across the pages. So the, not, the answer is not, oh, you have God, oh, everything suddenly becomes meaningful. Do you know what I mean? He believed in God, and yet vanity is there. So I think the contradiction in these verses are there to remind us how sticky, how sticky vanity her veil is. It sticks to us. It's everywhere. Life is complicated. We are men, as we read Kohelet more and more, we are men to see Kohelet in ourselves, struggling in the tension of contradictions that we face in this world. We as Christians live in an age to come, an overlap of ages. Things are not perfect yet. Perhaps, perhaps this, this contradiction, these contradictory verses are there to help us see how big the consequence of the fall has been. How big a mess humanity has caused in this world. Things are not simple. Talk to Marian. He, she does a lot of counseling. Don't even need to talk to Marian. Just talk to the next person next to you. If, if we dare, just, if we are open enough, ask about your mom, ask about your dad, ask about your grandparent, we will start to see how messed up humans have made the world, isn't it? It's messy. They're full of contradictions. It's a mess. So I think these verses are there to help us see how big the gospel is. Because only when we see the big mess that sin has caused, only then we'll appreciate what a big solution the gospel is. That it solves the problem, the mess that we have created. Then we'll be driven to be more and more thankful and appreciated of what the gospel has achieved for humanity.
I think it's in Colossians, isn't it? Or Ephesians. That Paul says, the gospel reconciles all things. Now we have a deep appreciation and thankfulness of the all things. All the mess has been reconciled in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you that in the midst of despair we can stand up and be strong and be hopeful. And this is not an empty hope. This is not an illusion. This is not imaginary. But it is a true hope. For our Lord Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. Our sins have been abolished once for all. The mess that we have made of this world has been swept clean. We thank you that we have a hope to look forward to when our Lord Jesus returns, that there will be completely, completely no more vanities. Everything will be made right. There will be no more tears. There will be no more evil. And all is good. Just the way that you have made it in creation. Father, we admit that we have allowed idols to capture our land. We worship the works of our hands and for far too long we have built houses on sand. Only you and you alone, O Lord, can teach us to number our days and cause us to walk in your ways. So, Father, we pray now that you will revive us. You may send forth your spirit, unsheathe your sword and break through our chains, that by the power of your word, you may revive us, revive us, revive us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.